Well, that that we just read, brethren and sisters and young people, is of course the second song of the Song of Solomon, which we're going to uh, cover tonight. But before we actually do that, we gave out some notes. Um, Brother Alan, did you have another couple of copies of that? I think um, there's a few that haven't got them. I'll just explain those to you. We're not going to deal in great detail with them, but perhaps one of them I want to run through because I think it's important to the whole book of the Song of Solomon. The other are just some aids that will help us with the... um, with the, some of the matters that are introduced in the book and they come from other studies particularly so they're not particularly for the Song of Solomon um, the first one is uh, however the uh, copy of the comparison between First Chronicles 17 and Second Samuel 7 uh, Brother John's done that on his computer for us very nicely so uh, that's um, quite handy to have now and you can perhaps go on and mark that into uh, the margin of your Bible if you so desire but it's a very good comparison between the um, between the two uh, uh, the two readings if you took notes that night you'll probably notice that I've even added a couple of other points there that we didn't deliver that I didn't mention that night uh, for instance the questionable verse in verse 14 if he committed equity I'll chasten him that apart from the phrase if he committed iniquity the word chasten is a word that actually means to correct someone who has been guilty and of course again would be totally inappropriate for Christ in fact Christ actually uses it of himself in John chapter 8 and verse verse 46 and says no one can chasten me or or uh, rebuke me because he hadn't sinned so um, it's just there and there's a couple of others too you'll notice that uh, we picked up as we've gone through so I think you'll find that interesting the others um, coming back to that one last because we'll deal with that a little bit but on that one that's got a lot of writing on it uh, is an outline that we did some years ago of the traditional Jewish wedding and the way in which it goes. I want to just run through that briefly in, in a few moments to show you because there are a lot of principles and a lot of um, particularly more uh, customs that come out of that which are relevant to our study as we go through. The other is just additional work for you to to um, to have in this subject. There is some notes on the uh, virgins, um, because that is a subject we were introduced to last week. Remember, we were introduced to the virgins very early in the piece because they are the singular, they are us singularly in the ecclesia of God, whereas the bride represents the ecclesia as a group, the virgins represent us as individuals. And one of the exhortations we can get from that, of course, is to go to the New Testament and look at the parable of the virgins. And so we put down some details uh, of that for instance I think it's always um, uh, very exhortational to realise that it was ten, five plus five, five rejected, five accepted, the number of grace and of course what it's telling us is that we all have received equally of the grace of God none of us can complain if we're not in the kingdom that it was because we didn't receive the same amount of grace as those who were wise um, but those couple of charts there deal with the the uh, words that are found there, the word foolish and wise and their their uh, meanings are outlined there for you perhaps we could just run through the one that's marked page number 8 got nothing to do with the order in which we look at it that's taken from a section of notes I've got on the marriage and supper of the lamb but I just want to read through Matthew 25 and just pick up the essence of that parable because here's where the exhortation comes from we, we get exhortation of course from the Song of Solomon itself but it's by looking also at these other characters of the wedding that we can receive exhortation and this is the summary, Matthew 25, the parable of the virgins. It represents the call of all ages, that's why 10 is there, that very important number. Uh, right, so um, 
it, the number 10 is important scripturally and gospel wise uh, truth wise 10 is the number of course of completeness um, Jews still make it a very important number today in fact unless they, when there are 10 Jews in a town they can build a synagogue for instance uh, there must be 10 to make a quorum in any Jewish decision so 10 is an important number and of course scripturally it represents the call of all ages they all have understanding of the word that's why they all had lamps none of us of course can claim that we haven't got understanding and they've all set out on the straight path because they all went forth they all have received the grace of God 5 plus 5 but not all who are called will be chosen because there are foolish and wise some neglect to prepare themselves mentally for the return of the Lord Jesus Christ they were the ones who took no oil the others have prepared themselves mentally and morally and by study of God's word have stored epinosis. Gnosis of course being the Greek word for knowledge and epi meaning extra. And that's exactly what the oil in the vessels were. They had extra oil. It's probably the clearest explanation of the word epinosis that we have in scripture. Verse 5, in Adam all die, so they all slumbered and slept. Which is the two, the two stages would seem in the parable to indicate those long dead and those recently deceased. And at the darkest hour, midnight, Christ returns to judge the responsible. The bridegroom comes. All the responsible assemble at Sinai to be judged, which is represented by them trimming their lamps. The righteous acknowledge that salvation is by God's grace. That's why they say, we have not enough for you and us. It wasn't a selfish statement. It was a recognition that they're not saved by works. Therefore, whatever oil they had was not enough for themselves, leave alone enough to give away. It's a very humble statement rather than a, an aggressive one that's sometimes seen as. Um, and verse 10, The righteous, they that were ready, are conducted into the wedding by the groom, but the foolish are rejected by the groom, I know you not. A correct attitude toward Christ's return is what classes one as wise, because he goes on to say, Therefore, watch watch for, uh, for the, his return. So that's just a summary of that parable, but very quickly you can pick up, there's a lot of exhortations that we can pick up, which are in addition to the Song of Solomon, but um, uh, it's what uh, Bible study is all about, is picking up the inferences and the wording elsewhere in Scripture and adding it to that that we have from the book we're considering. Now the other sheet then is a general summary. Firstly, we've got Genesis 2.18 and 20, and Genesis 2.24 and Ephesians 5. That's just a, an outline for you of the words back in Genesis 2.18. Help meet for him. And we've got the meanings of the words there. We'll be, we referred to those last class. We won't emphasise it again. Uh, just a note there on Genesis 2.24. Therefore shall a man leave his father and his mother and shall cleave unto his wife and they shall be one flesh. We've picked up from that statement two things. One is the reason why it's said that way. Uh, it doesn't literally mean that a man has to leave his father and mother but the principle is that he's the one that changes his position the woman doesn't she's in subjection to her parents and she becomes in subjection to her husband her role never changes but his goes from subjection to his parents to being over the Lord over his wife so it's he that leaves his mother and father she doesn't and that's what's meant by that terminology and Brother Thomas brings out a very interesting lesson on page 55 of Israel when he applies it spiritually that where it says we shall leave father and mother, it's of course us forsaking our fleshly parentage and cleaving is joined to the wife, is joined to the ecclesia as the bride of Christ. So he's picked up the spiritual aspect which is very relevant to the Song of Solomon because of course we are the bride. When we see ourselves as the ecclesia, ecclesial bride, 
it means of course that we have left our father and mother there should be no no connection with our past life we are new in Christ Jesus over the page is comments on the best man and at the bottom is a location of the songs locations in the song of Solomon and uh, I thought that was interesting as you go through the book all these places are mentioned and uh, they're there on the chart to show you where they are in uh, in um, uh, in the land and that of course shows us that it was Solomon who was the author because uh, the extent of Solomon's kingdom went up way up there beyond um, Mount Senna and Mount Amarna up further north and came right down to the south so it's all areas that were in, included in the area of the the um, uh, kingdom of Solomon but you might find that interesting as we go through them names are actually mentioned in the Song of Solomon just one thing before we get off these and that is the best man section there we introduced him at the last verse that we considered which is verse 8 remember we said that in the song the phrase if thou knowest not O thou fairest amongst women go thy way by thy footsteps of the flock and feed thy kids beside the shepherd's tents are in the masculine but they're part of the, the bridal party so they are in fact the words of the best man and he is a very important part of the Jewish wedding so we've summarised some of the principles of the best man there at the top of that page he firstly was the friend of the groom it's the word used to John the Baptist in John chapter 3 verse 26 and as we pointed out last class he actually went and proposed on behalf of his friend he went to the bride and proposed on her behalf now of course that's um, that's evident from a couple of scriptures from 2nd Corinthians chapter 11 and verse 2 where we have um, Paul says I espoused you unto uh, Christ now we of course not we're not engaged to Paul we're engaged to Christ and he espoused as the best man Eliezer in the Old Testament in Genesis 24 went on behalf of um, uh, Abraham uh, to find a wife for Isaac and he played the part of the best man and uh, Moses was another example and in Jeremiah 2 verse 2 God says that you came out as a young bride out of Egypt and of course Moses was the one who invited them to come out so he acted the part of the best man now each of those three characters then fulfil the next part because the best man to the Jew is known as the paranymph that's the word I've got there in, in brackets and paranymph of the wedding the word para is alongside the word nymph is the word for bride so it means alongside the bride and that's the, still the word they use for the best man today in a Jewish wedding he is the paranymph taken from the Greek uh, which means of course that he has now the care of the bride and has to get her ready for the wedding day now the examples of that are Paul in that same chapter in 2 Corinthians 11 in verse 28 says above all I had the care of the ecclesia and so he clearly outlines his responsibility Eliezer of course in Genesis 24 very clearly had the care of the bride in mind and uh, um, that verse 48 could be, could be other verses we could use but show his concern for, uh, for Rebecca on that occasion and for her comfort and her welfare and in Numbers 11 verse 11 of course Moses is to say to God um, why have you given me this care of the ecclesia and remember it's a time when he's lamenting they were complaining about food uh, and he said that, um, that why have you put me in this position so he acknowledges that that is his role caring for the ecclesia and coming back to our responsibility 
We pick up in the New Testament that we have the role of best man because in 1 Corinthians 10.33 and 11.33 we are told that it is our duty to care for one another and um, put each other first. Chapter 11 verse 33, the chapter we read on Sunday mornings at the memorial meetings is perhaps a very beautiful example where Paul ends that whole discourse on the memorials by saying therefore when you come together tarry one for another and there's the idea of caring for one another. So the best man, although when we look at this parable in the Song of Solomon, we think, well, yes, we can see ourselves as the bride. We can perhaps see ourselves as the bridesmaids. What we're really saying is we've got to see ourselves as all these characters. So when the best man is introduced here, he can apply to us too. It's a different position to to the bridesmaids and brings out a different characteristic. And the characteristic particularly is of teaching the word of God. That's what, that's what um, we would say is the work of the best man. Um, so that will help again for some markings if you wanted to put alongside that verse in uh, chapter 1 and uh, verse uh, 8 where the best man is mentioned. Now then, just quickly back onto this big sheet here. You'll notice that at the top we've got the principles that we see out of the characters of the wedding. So that the the bridesmaids represent knowledge because of the oil. The bride represents separation. We know that. She was a virgin bride and represented her separation to her her husband. The best man, as we just picked up, represents teaching. The guests represent obedience because they had the, the invitation which they had to obey. And the servants represent preaching the word. Not teaching, but preaching. Because the servants go out with the invitation and give it to those on the highways and byways. So they all have a part to play in the wedding. And that's the spiritual lessons that we will get from them. Um, the coloured in section is, is the order in which you go down through this diagram. And it's in the correct order. The groom first selects his bride. And we've noticed on the side there some of the, the uh, traditions and characters of that with agreement of parents and with mental and moral compatibility were the two um, examples of why a groom would select that particular girl. The best man then invites for the groom. That's what we just dealt with. The bride having accepted that in the next section, then the guests receive their first invitation. See, they get told at the time. It's like engagement to us. When the message goes out, I've been engaged to a girl, that's when you're invited to a Jewish wedding. Not later. You are told, I've now been engaged, I want you to be at my wedding. That's why in the parable of the servants, they refer to having received an invitation sometime previous. And now they are reminded of that invitation. So they get their invitation when in fact the girl girl, um, accepts. It's interesting too that alongside bride accepts, you notice that it's then that the vows are made. In the Jewish wedding they don't do what we do and that is make vows on the wedding day. They make them on the day of espousals. There are what are called the the vows of espousal and today they're taken from Hosea. Um, But the vows are made at the time of acceptance like us of baptism. We're not going to get to the judgment seat and there God says now I want some vows from you. We've already done that just as the Jewish bride did. See the Jewish wedding fits the pattern spiritually a lot better than our our English weddings, in fact they don't fit sometimes at all. So the Jewish one is what is one that gives us the clue. So our vows have already been made when we accepted Christ's invitation to be his bride. And we accepted that invitation from a best man. It might have been our parents who brought us up in the truth. It might have been someone who taught us the truth. That would be our best man. They were the ones who came and invited us, as it were, to be the bride. And generally speaking, that 
best man then that person continues with us through life helping you know those brethren who have come in from outside generally keep a very close contact with those that brought them in and they would perhaps still go back to them for spiritual advice when necessary and there's that contact like there would have been between the best man and the bride so she accepts the vows are made and agreed to and then the guests receive their first invitation now between that time and the wedding the best man the next point number five the best man becomes the paranymph he carries the the details backwards and forwards and he cares for her um, and he would take little messages he would take gifts and so forth during that time period and he would be very wary of that girl so that if he saw her doing something displeasing to her future husband he would go and say so the, the groom wouldn't he would he would go and say look you're going to marry my best friend and you shouldn't be therefore be doing that um, and that of course is the game the role of the best man when we go to our brethren and sisters and say look I don't think your walk is worthy of Christ we're acting the role of best man we're preparing the bride for the wedding then the date is set for the wedding and under the Jewish tradition there were two things that were necessary uh, later on uh, it became traditional for them to have a house and a vineyard were the two things before the marriage day could be set now of course that's significant spiritually too because both of those are mentioned in the Song of Solomon it's then when the date has been set the guests receive their second invitation <coughs> Excuse me. Um, they receive that from the servants who go out and give it to them the groom then commences his festivities this is interesting and it comes into our section today because the groom's friends are going to be mentioned in verse 11 of chapter 1 and they begin their festivities with the groom again very, very different to what we do today I suppose it's a very rough analogy but it's similar to a buck's evening now we use that in a derogative sense I suppose it's an excuse for a young man to go out and be wild but what this happened here was that the, the groom took his best man and all his groomsmen and he began his festivities first it was his day and without any women there he began his festivities in the parallel it's very beautiful that's Christ now in heaven with the angels and they're his best man and they're preparing the wedding day they're as it were sitting down working out how many can come where they're going to sit what food they're going to eat spiritually they're working out the wedding day and they're rejoicing with him so that we can read that there is great rejoicing in heaven when a sinner is, uh, is saved in, in, uh, in the parables in Matthew. So there is rejoicing in heaven with the Lord Jesus Christ now and his groomsmen. They begin the festivities. Then the bridesmaids meanwhile have been preparing the bride. And they do that traditionally as we're going to see in the Song of Solomon. They literally strip her down ceremonially. They bath her. They anoint her with oil. And then they dress her again. And they physically do that for her and that's them preparing just as of course we we need to help each other prepare for the coming of Christ then the bridesmaids having made sure she looks pretty and ready for the groom they set out to meet the groom which of course is in the parable in the New Testament and he comes and it was quite traditional for it to be at midnight he'd begun his festivities early hours of the afternoon he would be some hours with his groomsmen and his friends first and then at strike of midnight um, he would move out and he would go and pick up his bride on the way the bridesmaids would meet him they would go to the house and conduct her out of the house now technically speaking in a Jewish wedding once she left the door of the house of her parents she was married to that man that was the signal of her now being married she'd left her father and mother and they did that traditionally by taking her away 
and then they would go to the area where the marriage had been uh, uh, been arranged. So he would take his wife, his bride, and it would now the wedding would be conducted traditionally over seven to fourteen days. We point this out before, I think, but that doesn't mean everybody's got to give up work for seven or fourteen days. Everybody goes off to work as normal during the day, but at night, instead of going home for tea, you go back to this place and you continue your feasting and rejoicing. And then you would go off home again and get up, go to work the next day, come back that night, and that would go on for seven to fourteen days. It's, it's still done, actually. Greek weddings do that. Sometimes an Italian wedding does that. I went to a Greek wedding that went for seven days and they actually had a hotel book for that time period every evening you could go there from six o'clock in the evening and they just continued their festivities for over the period of seven days but that's how it was with the Jewish wedding but on the evening of the first night they actually very early they would actually conduct and we would see it we probably our view of it's altogether different and we'd see it almost as I was say indecent but um, inopportune but they actually conducted the bride and groom to the wedding chamber they actually took them and, and hustled them off into the wedding chamber and then they rejoiced because that meant of course they were going to consummate the marriage and um, so that was done traditionally with them and the consummation of the wedding was taking place now once that happened the whole wedding changed and they threw open the doors which is the last point there they threw open the doors and let everybody come to the wedding until then it's only invited guests but once they'd consummated the wedding consummated the marriage um, then they opened the doors and anybody from the town could come in and spiritually speaking of course that's the difference between us at Sinai and when the nations are invited to join in when they, we come up to Jerusalem so that's very quickly the summary of a Jewish wedding now that sounds like an awful lot perhaps but you'll find as we go through now the Song of Solomon a lot of that becomes very relevant and if we didn't understand the form, the form in which a Jewish wedding took then perhaps we'd miss the point and so uh, it's good to have in the background the idea of a Jewish wedding and how it was conducted. Alright, so we're in our second song. The second song of the Jewish section of the book, remember we're still in the first section, and although we're going to draw lessons for ourselves, because we are, after all, the bride, even though we be Gentile, yet this is, of course, the Jewish bride specifically and we can pick that up if you wanted to just quickly mark it in your notes there that in this chapter particularly we've got mention of Pharaoh's chariot in verse 9 which would be an obvious reference back to natural Israel and in fact it's the clue to the time we're talking about when Yahweh called Israel out of Egypt he called her out as his bride that's the words that he uses of her, of Israel so we're going back to the time of Pharaoh's chariots uh, in verse 9 uh, in verse 15 we've got reference to her being uh, having dove's eyes now the dove of course is the symbol of Israel Yonah, the dove and it's not used in the book of anything else but the Jewish bride five times the word dove occurs always of the Jewish bride now if you know, if you've been through I suppose most any of you have you might criticise that and say well no he's mentioned in the Gentile section In um, the dove is mentioned in chapter 6 but it's in the context of the Jewish bride when the Gentile bride becomes the Jewish bride the dove is mentioned there but then it's no longer used and it's used in the, con it's used in the very clear context that now my beloved is the dove in other words we've been introduced to the hope of Israel so the dove is a symbol of Israel and is really only used of the Jewish bride in verse 17 there is the reference to the rafters of fir and that's one of the trees like the um, uh, fig tree which is exclusive of Israel uh, 
the fir tree is always used in, in prophecy and in prophetical um, references to Israel and the blessings upon Israel and whereas for instance cedars are used for the Gentiles as well but not so with the fir it's always Israel and in chapter 2 verse 1 the word for rose the rose of Sharon um, the word there is a word that's again used specifically of Israel and of course that's why in the in Isaiah 35 the desert shall blossom as the rose is a reference to the blessings upon Israel particularly so in this one chapter there's at least those three or four references particularly to Israel and we'll find there's other allusions to it as we go through so we're in the Jewish section however a section which is, uh, has a lot of lessons for us as well the word love occurs remember we went through and had a look before love it being a book of love the three words for love are here and perhaps if you wanted to we could mark them in now so that you've got them I don't know whether you're colour coded or not but um, um, in, um, in verse 9 that, that word there is the word raya um, it's the one that's often translated as wife it means a close associate or a friend uh, the word raya R-A-Y-A-H it's used in verse 9 verse 15 Behold thou art fair my love and in verse 2 of chapter 2 as a lily among thorns so is my love in each case that's the word raya a close associate as we said that's the word that's used nine times through the song of Solomon in verse 13 we've got the word well beloved is our next word which is the word dad or dod uh, which means to boil uh, and it's actually translated it's in the book 37 times now that's in verse 13 verse 14 verse 16 and chapter 2 verse 3 in other words every time the word beloved is used it's the word dod which has the idea of to boil it's a very expressive word of excitement and the third word is the word Ahab uh, which is um, uh, the word for affection or love as we would probably use it and that's in verse 5 of chapter 2 so chapter 2 verse 5 I am sick of love that's the word Ahab so all of our three words for love are found in this second song and that's where they're found now we'll have something to say about those as we come to them but you might like to have just underlined them or marked them uh, first the title for this for this section for this song if you remember if you look at your notes at the back you'll find is expressions of love right the first one was the choice I think was the phrase we used was it chapter one the chosen bride now we're dealing with expressions of love and it's expressions of love now between the bride and the groom as they express their love for each other it parallels of course in the new t in the the second section of the book um, with uh, song uh, seven, the song eight, and it actually um, is exactly the same there. It's just simply song of expression of love. Now it begins this way: I have compared thee, O my love, and this is the groom speaking, by the way. The groom speaks from verses nine and ten, talking about his bride, and he says, "I have compared thee, O my love, to a company of horses in Pharaoh's chariots." thy cheeks are comely with rows of jewels thy neck with chains of gold and the, the um, friends of the bridegroom then answer in verse 11 and say we will make thee borders of gold with studs of silver now let's 
start to imagine again our picture that we've got presented. We've now got the, the groom speaking and he is accompanied of course by his groomsmen, by his friends. So as he begins to talk about his bride, they come in like the bridesmaids supported the bride. Remember when the bride spoke, the bridesmaids came in and said, we will love him also. And she said, well, he's like this. And they said, yes, we feel that way too. And they endorsed everything that she said. We've got the masculine side of it now. And the groom speaks and his groomsmen immediately come in behind him and say, we'll help you. He says, I'm going to dress her up specially. And they said, yep, we will add to that. We'll give the, her borders of gold with studs of silver. So they're prepared to also work and to prepare the bride. So it's an expression now, a masculine expression, expressions between the groom and his, his groomsmen. Now the groom speaking says, I have compared thee, O my love, to a company of horses in Pharaoh's chariots. Now, first thing, of course, would say, it wouldn't sound to us to be very complimentary to say you're like an old hag. Um, but that's not, of course, what it's talking about. And in fact, the phrase company of horses, those three words, is in fact one word in the Hebrew, and it's the word for a mare. It's a feminine horse. Now, that is quite different to what would have been in Pharaoh's chariots. Pharaoh's chariots, of course, would have been, been uh, um, pulled by stallions. And in fact, the word that's used back in Genesis is for a stallion, for a male horse. And they would have been the best that Pharaoh could choose now here's the groom looking at his bride and he sees her and of course you can cast your mind back into Egypt and there's God looking at Israel in Egypt and she was different although she was harnessed by Egypt and by Pharaoh they were harnessed in a very real sense because they had to do what he said they were being led by him yet she was different and Yahweh was prepared to bring Israel out of Egypt because they were different so he actually says that you're like a mare in Pharaoh's chariot in fact Rotherham adds a little extra to that which makes it even nicer he says you like a mare of mine in Pharaoh's chariot a mare of mine in Pharaoh's chariot the idea being of course that God now selects that bride that mare he says I'm going to have that one she's different and I'm going to have her to myself now the word love there as we said is the word um, rayah and really it has it, it's the word which as we said means a close associate but in the Hebrew when you look at the Hebrew lexicons it says it has particularly the idea of enjoyment in one another's company now we can use love in all sorts of expressions but this one has this particular idea of enjoying another person's company and of course is a, is a lovely word and a beautiful word in scripture it's the word used in we won't turn up but if you want to mark it down in Malachi 3.16 where it says that they spake one to another. Now literally the phrase in the Hebrew, one to another, is rayah to rayah, friend to friend. And that's a picture of the ecclesia. And it says that they spake friend to friend, and God heard it. And he said, they are my jewels, remember? So that's the word back in Malachi 3.16. And it's a, it's a very expressive word of, um, of friendship. Um, remember we said that last time how wonderful to hear somebody say this is not only my, my wife or my husband but my friend it's quite a different expression in that and uh, here's an acknowledgement of the groom uh, for the friendship that they, she, he has for his bride now of course you don't have to use your imagination much to pick up that word in the New Testament and realise that that's exactly what Christ said to the disciples he said no longer will I call you servants but I'll call you friends because all the disciples of Christ are in fact friends and uh, it's a friendship that's shared between him and, uh, and his bride and so he says that 
uh, I've compared you then to this mare in Pharaoh's chariot. Now if you want to mark it down, you can mark down Isaiah 63 verse 13 we're particularly told that I brought Israel out as a goodly horse out of Egypt. That's the exact phrase that's used in, in Isaiah chapter 63 verse 13. I brought Israel out of, out of Israel, Israel out of Egypt as a horse. So here's our identification with Israel as a nation. And in Yahweh's view, they were brought out as a horse was brought out of Egypt. And um, of course, the principle, if you want to write it down there, the principle which of course applies to us is in James 3 verse 2 or verse 3 sorry James 3 3 who can tell me what's in James 3 3 yeah they put bits in horses mouths to lead them about there's the principle isn't it that unless Israel had been guided by Yahweh they would never have come out of the land and the principle and the lesson spiritual lesson for us in being a horse as Israel had to learn was that they had to be be responsive to, to God guiding them and of course they unfortunately didn't do that later on but at least in coming out of Egypt they were led out by Yahweh and in fact in Exodus chapter 13 verse 18 God says I brought you harnessed out of Egypt Um, Exodus chapter 13 verse 18 I brought you harnessed out of Egypt so both in Isaiah and in Exodus we're told that Israel represents a horse being brought out of of Egypt by Yahweh Now I've got a note alongside that too that a mare in Pharaoh's chariot in Egypt but not of it. That's a spiritual lesson isn't it? That was the principle. In Egypt but not of it. They weren't a stallion like the rest. This was a mare. It shone out as something different. And there's a very powerful lesson in that for us because we as the Gentile bride of the Lord Jesus Christ have to be something different to the rest of the world. Although we find ourselves unfortunately spiritually in Egypt yet we must be separate from it. So some very powerful lessons in the choice of words here. Now in verse 10 and 11, what you could do if you've got your notes out is put a bracket around there and and put the word horse because the phrases here really relate to a horse, not a woman. And most of our commentators, commentaries actually, have made the mistake of trying to make this a woman or, 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 um, or what's the word? Um, ornamented with with things with with earrings and so forth but it's not that at all the terminology is very clearly the terms of doing a horse up that you want to put on show and so it goes on and says thy cheeks are comely with rose not of jewels and the word rose is the word borders in verse 11 so he says I'll make make uh, thy cheeks are comely with borders or the word literally is the word for uh, is translated as garlands in the Young's translation. It's a word for windings or twistings uh, and speaks of a garland rather than a necklace as such. It's a garland that a horse would wear around its neck. Hence it's laying against the cheeks of the horse. So thy cheeks are comely with garlands, thy neck with chains. And of course when he says this he doesn't mention you see any actual, any actual metals there. Uh, he's just talking about his bride and he says your cheeks are comely with, with, with these garlands and your neck's got chains and it's the response now of the best man the groomsmen who say we will make some for her we will make some we'll make the garlands of gold and we'll put in it studs of silver <coughs> now you see in simple terms for instance, this is what they're saying is 
And when Yahweh brought Israel out of Egypt, the Elohim helped him. When Yahweh said, I'm going to bring my bride out of Egypt, the Elohim said, we will help you, spiritually speaking. They are ministering spirits to minister unto the saints. In this occasion, the saints are Israel as a nation. And when God brought Israel out of Egypt, the Elohim helped him. And that was shown, of course, in the fact that Moses was specifically shown the angel that would lead them through the wilderness. He was shown the angel as they stood at the Red Sea and the, the angel who was there to take them across. So the angels were involved in the work of bringing Israel out as the, um, as the ministering spirits. Now, you know, brothers and sisters, spiritually, the same thing applies to us. God calls us. We know that from Scripture. But having called us, the Elohim play their part. And they say, we're going to help you. Yahweh with this we're going to we're going to deck this bride out very very beautifully for you and as the Elohim work in our lives so we are made beautiful for Yahweh now we've got to of course allow um, I have an attraction for animals it's alright um, um, we, we have to allow the Elohim to do that the only way you can put garlands and studs of silver on a horse is if it stands still and lets you do it and we have to be prepared to let the Elohim work in our life and to prepare us as beautiful for Yahweh. And so here's Yahweh using this figure of a horse and looking down upon Israel as a horse and saying that she is like a mare and she's decked out with beautiful things and the angels give their, advice, they give their help to that and they say, we're going to help you and we'll make those garlands of gold and studs of silver. The word studs, by the way, is the word in the Hebrew which literally means to mark with a brand. And it's the word used for branding on leather. So we're talking of bridle of a horse. And we're talking really of the, the work of the Elohim who were going to, on Yahweh's behalf, bring that horse out of Egypt. But it was a very special bridle that was going to be given. They were going to be harnessed with studs of silver. Now, if you want to add to that something which would help is that both gold and silver, of course, are the two metals that were brought out of Egypt. Psalm 105, verse 37. Psalm 105, verse 37. Exodus 3, verses 19 to 22. They were the very metals that they had to bring out of Egypt. And later on were used, of course, in the building of the tabernacle. So there's an identification again with, uh, with Israel here that they were to bring out those metals which are here mentioned. But Psalm, uh, Psalm 105, 37, 37 and Exodus 3, 19 to 22. But I, know, I find that a beautiful picture presented. I mean, you've just got to sit back and use your imagination a little. And I suppose anybody who's been down the show in the <coughs> next last couple of days, you, you know what we're talking about. We're talking about a horse that's been done up for show, a beautiful horse with all its trimmings on it. And here's Yahweh providing this horse with those things to, that it might bring, the, bring that horse out of Egypt. And the Elohim have added their help to that. So very, very beautiful is the phrases of verse 10 and 11. Now, of course, when we look at gold and silver, we're not going to go into it, but gold and silver, of course, are the metals of tried faith and of redemption. We can extend that as another principle if you want to. There's so many themes and so many things you can pick up in Song of Solomon. But here's your colours, as we've said, of try gold and redemption. And, of course, purging is another lesson that comes out of metals. Whenever you talk about metals, you're talking of purging, another spiritual principle. And uh, so 
as I said, as I said before, when we look at Song of Solomon, sometimes we think, well, what can we get out of that? Well, if you wanted to, there's plenty that you can get out of those few verses. You could go back to Egypt. You could look at the way Yahweh brought them out. The angels had a part. You can look at the principles of gold and silver. All of those are extra subjects you could look at when you're looking at the Song of Solomon. Now the bride responds, and she responds from verses 12 to 14. And you know, again, just use your imagination. It's, in a sense, a little comical, I suppose, but... You know, have you ever been someone with someone that tries to, if in a sense, outdo the next person? And here's the groom saying, well, my bride's like this. And she responds by saying, well, I see my husband like this. And the, the contrast statements are being made. He's expressed how he... 12 to 14. And she says this. While the king sitteth at his table, my spikenard sendeth forth the smell thereof. A bundle of myrrh is my well beloved unto me. He shall lie all night betwixt my breasts. My beloved is unto me as a cluster of camphor in the vineyards of Engedi. And so she now talks about her beloved. And the first thing is, she says that while he's sitting at his table, the word, the phrase sitting at his table, or the word table there, really is a Hebrew word which means to encompass about. It's used of God's protection. Psalm 140 verse 9 it's used for instance and it speaks of, of um, um, uh, in, the, in a spiritual sense of encompassing around and protecting. So we could perhaps read that into it here that she's, there's a particular word which speaks of course of the work of the king as much as what he's doing because the, the work of the Lord Jesus Christ of course is that of protecting his bride and uh, so it's suitable in that sense. But in context with what we talked about in verse 11, I believe it's talking of the fact that the king is surrounded by his associates. And we're talking of verse 11, we're talking of the groomsmen. And you see, she has actually seen him in this picture. He's made a comment and his groomsmen have, have answered. Now she refers to that and she says, while the king is there, surrounded at his table, my spikenard sendeth forth the smell thereof. In other words, she was constantly in his mind. That's what she's really saying. She's saying that even though he was absent, yet, she, to use a, a phrase literally, he can smell me. My perfume is ascending to him. Now, we can't miss the inferences here, can we? We're talking of the Lord Jesus Christ and his bride. We're talking of the work of the Lord Jesus Christ as our mediator. Spike note here being used of the ascending perfumes of prayer. And that must always be there. That must always be there. We must be in the position where we could say the same. We could say of the Lord Jesus Christ, he knows I'm here because he would smell my perfume. But you see, we would know he's not smelling it if we're not giving him the perfume. If we're not prayerful, if we're not using prayer in our life, then there isn't this aroma going up to the Lord Jesus Christ. And prayer is a very important link between husband and groom in this sense because it's the, the, um, uh, the, the prayer of and life going up before the king. So she's really saying, he's aware of me. And uh, she uses spikenard as, an, as a, an example of that. Now, spikenard, of course, must take our minds through to John chapter 12, uh, where the woman anointed the Lord Jesus Christ with spikenard. And we're told there is spikenard very precious. And precious it was. I did some sums at one time on that parable and it was a year's wages. It's easy enough to do that because it tells you how much it was worth and we're told in the parables of Christ how much a man got for, for a week's work, 
for a day's work. And when you put those two figures together, the spike nard that the woman offered and wiped upon his feet was worth a year's wages. Now you work that out in your own case of, you know, like, you know, Alan Beecham's three million a year or something, whatever you get. Um, but it's a lot of money that's involved. And um, uh, that's no wonder that John, uh, that uh, uh, Judas got so upset when he looked at that and said, um, what a waste all that money just being poured out and he said of course it was for my burial that she's poured it out but it's there in John chapter 12 that of course we get the significance therefore of of um, uh, of spikenard firstly it's related to death we get that from chapter 12 and verse 7 of John because he said she has done this unto my death and so there's the idea of sacrifice involved in, in the spikenard the second thing is it's related to faith because in the third verse she says that the faith of this woman will go down in remembrance against her for what she's done. So faith is represented by Spike Nard and of course thirdly we could add to that that it represents prayer. So summed up in the word Spike Nard is our whole life is our dedication to God, the faith in our life and our prayers unto God. So it's an all-embracing term. So when she says when the king is sitting with his friends at his table my spikenard sends forth the smell thereof she's saying in simple terms he knows all about me he knows how I live he knows the sacrifice I make for him he's heard my prayers and so she's making in that one phrase a, a generalisation about how that he actually um, knows her just one other interesting phrase that you could add to that out of John 12 verse 3 is of course in the case there in John 12 that the smell, the scent filled the house it said filled the house that's not a bad phrase to put alongside this because there would be the principle that here was a girl who realised that her life was dedicated to her beloved and therefore the smell as it were filled the house and he smelt that and uh, therefore she was constantly in his remembrance now she talks about him and she says he's like a bundle of myrrh and he shall lie all night betwixt my breast now I've already dealt with this before but the word he if it simply changed that to it it makes all the difference to that verse and that's what it's talking about it's a bundle of myrrh that was put around the neck and hung between the breasts and she went to the woman would wear that as a token of love from her beloved it was actually customary for for uh, friends to give a bundle of myrrh to each other just as we would give gifts they would give a bundle of myrrh and the bundle of myrrh would be worn around the neck so that when the heat of the body got into that myrrh the smell would waft up and you'd immediately think ah, um, you know, so and so gave that to me my friend gave me that and you'd get that remembrance every time the smell came up that's what she's talking about so she says he's there all the time he's laying betwixt my breasts and she's getting that odour from him he's getting an odour from her she is getting an odour from him and uh, in her case she says it's myrrh now of course myrrh as we know is the symbol in scripture of suffering it was a thorny bush for a start it was a bush that was very very prickly and had big thorns on it and the sap that came from it was red in colour and you couldn't get it until you actually in, made an incision in the bark you actually cut the bark and the red sap came out so all of those principles the incision, red and thorns brings our mind to suffering and uh, of course that's exactly what our beloved is isn't it if we remember anything about Christ it's his suffering 
and we at least once a week purposely partake of bread and wine that we might remember the suffering and as it were when we go Sunday morning and we partake of the bread and wine we have a bundle of myrrh because it's Christ said do this in remembrance of me in this case the bride simply wore the myrrh in remembrance of him and just as that odour was therefore coming up and she was smelling it each Sunday we have the same thing and we could visualise that um, uh, those bread and wine as representing myrrh we'll see that that comes out very beautifully in the uh, in the sixth song because it is myrrh which is left by the beloved as a sign of his coming and that of course is the bread and wine so uh, myrrh is very very beautiful here and it lies all night betwixt my breast now we mention again that we're not to get embarrassed about words like breast because to the Hebrew it's very important to use that word. Some of our writers and translators have tended to change it and make it chest for instance and that would be offensive to a Jew because chest is strength, it's the word for man, it's masculine. Breast is the feminine word and it means nourisher and that's what it's all about. You see it, it would be an expression of the gentleness of this girl and that while she has the myrrh, she herself is a nourisher. She has breasts. She nourishes. She's able to give sustenance and goodness. And that would be lost if you changed that word or if you skipped over it because you felt it was inappropriate. Very appropriate and very important that we leave it there. That the bag of myrrh was there lying betwixt the breasts as a representation, of, as a reminder that she was a, a nourisher, one that was able to help others as well. Then she goes on even further and says, My beloved is unto me as a cluster of camphor in the vineyards of Engedi. Now we've got two bags here. We've got a bag of myrrh in verse 13. We've now got a bag or a cluster of camphor um, in this, this verse. Just using your minds and brains and grey matter, think a little bit. What do you think would be, without knowing, understanding anything about these plants and that, what is what hits you straight away about these two bags? What's different about them? Uh, Sunday morning's exhortation. Last oh, Sunday, I think it was. Yes, last Sunday's exhortation. Well, one's hidden because it's when she's in bed, and the other is open because it's out in the vineyards of Engedi. So what she's saying is that his perfume stays with me when I'm privately on my own and when I'm out there amongst other people. This, the, her beloved, filled her life. Now, very often I think it would be true to say that yes, Christ is in our mind when we're home quietly laying on our bed, but what about when we get out in the vineyards of Engedi? Is he still there? Can we still smell him? Or have we left that scent back in the bed, back at home? You see, it's got to go with us. And here's an expression of this bride saying that I carry his perfume around with me all day whether I'm in my bed in the, because there is a difference isn't there when we think of Christ at home laying on our beds it's a more intimate perhaps perception of him but there are we still have to be aware of him when we're out in the vineyards of Engedi and so there is this this expression in those two words and really brethren and sisters that's really what we have to do with Bible study is pick up little indicators like that you've got to sometimes sit back even close your Bible and sit back at your desk and think now what is it that's different about these two things and suddenly click you know the light bulb goes on ah one's in bed one's out of bed there must be something here and they, to me they're the gems in Bible study and the things that we get from simply uh, thinking and meditating on the word so she's there in verse 13 it's, it's, he fills her thoughts in the private moments of life 
and verse 14 in the more mundane things when she's out in the vineyard of Engedi she still has reference to him now it's interesting that she should use the term vineyards of Engedi because Engedi was no ordinary place was it Engedi was an oasis in the desert and it's interesting that she should choose a word like that because she's not saying she's not admitting to being I see it as the bride not admitting to being out in the world and part of it she picks a particular place that is like a little oasis away from from the world and while we're in the world we should be in the vineyards of Engedi we might be in the uh, you know in the, we might be in telecom we might be uh, whatever everybody else is uh, snack foods or whatever um, but within that area we've got to have a little vineyard of Engedi where it's really different to the rest it's not out there and amongst everything it's a little oasis where we are able to, to as much as possible think about the things of God and again it, it in my mind conjures up some beautiful thoughts that she's admitting to, to as she was going to go on and say to, to, uh, to manual labour to having to work in vineyards but she still made a little Engedi for herself she still made within her daily life the opportunity to be separate and in Gedi of course is known as the oasis of the desert I understand Alan that's what it is isn't it mm. very beautiful spot where you come out of the the, um, the Jordan Valley dry and harsh and rocky and, and you go down the, the chasm and all of a sudden here you've got palm trees, water and all those things and uh, very beautiful uh, expression of what we can build for ourselves no matter what circumstances we're in no matter how hard we think the world is out there we've got to make ourselves a little in Gedi where we can of course give as much thought as possible to God very secluded place too yeah very secluded so uh, that fits in with the characteristics of this book which of course the bride and bridesmaids particularly emphasise and that is separateness um, the word cluster there by the way is the word eshkol um, you know the place where the, the uh, grapes came from in Numbers 13 verse 23 when they went to Eshgol and they found the cluster of grapes uh, it was named of course from the cluster um, and not necessarily of grapes here of course is a cluster of camphor but um, it's the word Eshgol is in fact a representative and used of the goodness of Yahweh it's used that way in Numbers 32 verse 9 Numbers 32 verse 9 and Deuteronomy 1 verse 24 both times it's used in the sense of God's goodness and blessings upon Israel which they received in Eshkol so that when Moses is talking to Israel he said remember the blessings of Yahweh at Eshkol and he always refers to Eshkol as a sign of that blessing upon the people so um, a very appropriate word here again for her to use and it's of camphor which we understand is the henna plant um, but the interesting thing is the word camphor in the Hebrew is the word kofa anybody get some little light bulbs going on kofa substitute the vowels which we always do of course in the Hebrew or you can put an A in there kafar what have we got covering the word for the covering the, the, it's the word atonement isn't it kafar is the Hebrew word atonement this is the word that comes from kafar. It means the same thing. It means a covering. It was obviously a reference to the type of henna plant which had the, the uh, solid uh, head on it which was like a covering. Um, and of course it was actually used for red dye, the henna plant. So again we've got this idea of suffering coming out as was found in the myrrh in the earlier verse. So 
a lot of lessons again. I mean, you know, incredible, isn't it, what you can get out of one word? But there's a study in itself to just consider the ca- the uh, the kapha plant um, uh, and the atonement, how that relates to this position here. She sees her husband not just she's seen him earlier as a bundle of myrrh. Now she sees him, as it were, as a sign of um, of atonement um, in the vineyards of Engedi. Now the groom replies to that because she's now spoken about the groom he now responds in verse 5 and he speaks again and he says behold thou art fair my love and that's our word raya the word that's word that has the idea of close associate that one enjoys the company of thou art fair my love behold thou art fair thou hast dove's eyes now just a point before we get on to this is that this has often been translated as the eye of a dove. It's not the eye of a dove. The figure is very clear in the Hebrew that it is a, an eye like a dove. The, the eye was a dove, right? Not dove's eyes, but her eyes were doves. And in fact, that's how it's translated in some of the translations. For instance, Rotherham says, Thine eyes are doves. Now, that's really what it means. It's the word for dove, not the word for dove's eye. Um, her eyes were like a dove. Now, of course, what that's doing is telling us that it's the dove that's the important thing. Now, I've got down about a dozen principles of the dove here, uh, and you can write these down if you want to. The word dove, firstly, as we mentioned before, is used five times through the book of the bride, always of Israel. It's a symbol of Israel, of course, and we could put Hosea 7.11 and 11.11. If you want to put that down. Hosea 7.11 and 11.11 it's also, it's also of course the symbol of Christ and we shouldn't forget that um, and uh, used by Christ as the symbol of death in the New Testament that as, as Jonah was three days and three nights Jonah of course is dove in the heart of the earth he was also of course when the Holy Spirit when he received it it was in the form of a dove not dove's eyes in the form of a dove uh, so there's a connection here with himself and his bride so it's a word he's chosen that spiritually relates to the groom and he said I see you as a dove now we go right back to a first principle out of Genesis 3 Genesis 2 she was a help meet she was a reflection of him so he can use a term that relates to him spiritually in the word that he was Christ is always referred to or is referred to as a dove and the principles of dove relate to him and he can use it of her because she is a reflection of him but the principles of the dove are these it's used as a symbol of mourning that's M-O-U-R-N-I-N-G mourning in Isaiah 38 verse 14 in the words of Hezekiah uh, bemoaning his position and he talks of himself moaning mourning like a dove Isaiah 38 verse 14 it's a symbol of sacrifice of course in Leviticus chapter 1 verse 14 the dove was the uh, was allowed and uh, in the sacrifices. It is something that seeks rest. Psalm fifty five verse six. We saw that of course right back in the story of of Noah, but it comes out in in Psalm fifty five verse six that a dove is constantly on look for somewhere where it can rest. Uh, it's a sign of redemption in Psalm sixty eight verse thirteen just yell out if I'm going too fast it nests on high 
in chapter 2 and verse 14 here of the Song of Solomon actually um, thou, make, thou, make thy clef, thy, thou art in the clefts of the rock so it makes its, um, its nest in the rock on high it is timid Isaiah 11 verse 11 talks about the silly dove of Israel Hosea 11 verse 11 timid it's a symbol of the spirit Matthew 3 verse 16 and of course it's, it's symbolic for harmlessness Matthew 10 verse 14 be as wise as serpents but as harmless as doves sorry that's verse 16 I think Matthew 10 verse 16 so there's, there's just a summary of why dove would be used so again you want to study for a night pick up the word dove and you can follow that out and find out all of the things therefore that the groom saw in the bride were all these principles she was in mourning she was one who saw the, the principles of sacrifice she was looking for rest she hadn't found that she was as, uh, appreciates redemption um, the uh, nesting high on the, on the rock he was timid spirit harmless all spiritual principles that he saw in his bride question for ourselves does he see that in us or does he look at our eyes and see the world because the, the eye is always of course the reflection of the person it's the reflection of the inward person and you know so often somebody will come and say oh you don't look too good today and you look at yourself in the mirror and you think well I look exactly the same as I did yesterday but it always shows up in the eyes uh, somebody said to Alan you'll be lucky to last out chairman tonight and they said that because they looked at his eyes no, this Alan, this, I'm picking on this Alan, all right, for a change. Um, but, um, he, um, and so eyes become a reflection of the person. Now, God looks at us in the eye, or we turn our eyes to him, they're going to be a reflection of either the world or spiritual principles. And this, this girl was a reflection of spiritual principles. She had dove's eyes, or the eyes of a dove. Let's just conclude with the next two verse, three verses because the bride now responds to that and she says thou art fair my beloved she picks up the same phrase he uses of her and now returns it back to him you know beautiful discourse going on between these two and he says you're fair she says yeah and so are you and so they use the same words because they are reflections of each other they are she is a she is meat for him behold thou art fair my beloved yea pleasant also our bed is green the beams of our house are cedar and our rafters of fir I am the rose of Sharon and the lily of the valleys so she talks in verse 16, 17 and verse 1 of chapter 2 the first two talking about her beloved the second one making a comment about her the first verse of chapter 2 making a comment about herself now concerning her beloved she says that he's fair same phrase as we said that he used of, um, of her and then says, yea, pleasant. Uh, and there's probably no better word for pleasant, although it's translated sweet in Second um, Samuel 23, verse 1, when talking of the Lord Jesus Christ, that he is the sweet theme of the Psalms of Israel. And that's the same word here. So it means sweetness or pleasantness. Second um, Samuel 23, verse 1. And then she says, also our bed is green. Now the word bed here, and we said there's three words for bed in the book, and that's one of the keys to the book, because everyone tends to read bed as something you lay on, therefore sometimes read into the verses something that's not even intended. 
she's talking here and the word really means to arch it's a couch not a bed you'd sleep on well you could you could sleep on a rock if you want to uh, but it's it's uh, the word for to arch and is better translated as couch and translated that way in most of the translations so it's talking more of just reclining uh, rather than actually sleeping that's another word that we'll find later on but she says that the couch is green green of course is the colour of eternity isn't it Revelation chapter 4 verse 3 the rainbow which covers the, uh, the throne in Revelation 4 is emerald because it's the colour of eternity of immortality so she's talking here of the perpetuity of her house she's not saying she's saying that our house is going to last forever when we get married there'll be no end to it and she's right isn't she you know all good stories fairy stories end with and they lived happily ever after well this is the true story the song of Solomon and they lived happily ever after and that's what she's referring to here when she uses the word green that their house is going to last forever um the beams of our house are cedar and remember that we point this out before the word house there is plural the beams of our houses and she's talking of course of the fact in the, in the literal we believe it's the bride of Solomon the Egyptian bride and they had houses identical to each other and they're not married if you, you know at this stage they're not married they have separate houses but they're both the same and the cedar and fir are the two things mentioned in the record in 1st Kings 7 verse 28 of the house that was built for him and for his bride um, the phrase rafters of fir you'll notice in your margin it says galleries and that's really what it means it means dwelling places hallowed out places I've put alongside it the quote in the New Testament John 14 verse 2 in my father's house are many dwelling places and that would be the equivalent in the New Testament it's talking of a main house and then some rooms on the side dwelling houses dwelling areas uh, hollowed out places are of fur uh, it's a word which is specifically used of the future blessings of Israel that word rafters or hollowed out places is used of the blessed future blessings on Israel in Hosea 14 verse 8 Isaiah 41 verse 19 Isaiah 55 verse 13 right Hosea 14 verse 8 Isaiah 41.19 Isaiah 55 verse 13 and then I've got etc after that so that means that that's not the only occasions there are many others if I put etc down it means there are a lot of others so it's representative of, of the blessing future blessings on Israel God talks of them settling or dwelling the word is very often this word rafters here and it's always used in the context of future blessings on Israel and then she talks of herself in chapter 2 and verse 1 and says I am the rose of Sharon and I am the lily of the valleys now the word rose um, there's two suggestions of where this comes from in the Hebrew one suggests that it, it comes from the sorry no forget that it doesn't it's, it comes from the meaning for the word rose comes from a word which means to form bulbs to form bulbs so our first indication of what this rose is is that it's not the rose that we would understand because it has to come from a bulb now uh, those who study these words have spent a lot of time trying to work out what the rose of Sharon is and the lily of the valley 
and they've come to the conclusion that the rose of Sharon is in fact a narcissus or what we would call a daffodil or, or jonquil which grows extensively uh, in the area of Sharon and the word Sharon actually just means plain or straight she's using it symbolically more than literally because when she uses Sharon she's saying I'm just ordinary because that's really what the word means, plain I'm just like a plain, well I suppose we'd say dandelion wouldn't we I mean in, if you're up here what would be the most common flower that's out here sow sob alright I'm like a sow sob ok there's a good one um, yeah if she was Aussie she'd say I'm just like a sow sob um, she is talking about that which is common that was growing around in the fields uh, and she calls it the rose of Sharon um, as we said it's the uh, narcissus uh, I've got down here it's, they suggest it's the narcissus ta Ziza, T-A-Z-E-double-Z-A or double T-A I'm not sure it's blurred but a Tazita it might be but um, I don't know whether anybody knows their plants and knows what the Narcissus Tazita oh I do know what it looks like um, but um, a very beautiful flower actually um, uh, usually of two colours white with a with a gold centre you know the, the um, um, daffodils are out now uh, but it's very white in the petal, this one, and very yellow in the in the trumpet side of it. Uh, I've got a photo here, you can have a look at it uh, perhaps later on. And the lily of the valley, the word lily, of course, is the word Shoshana. Shoshana awake? <laughs> We're talking about you, Shoshana. Yes, Shoshana. And there's two suggestions that in the Hebrew it comes from the word Shushan, which means white. Shushan the palace, and Esther 1. So it's either from Shushan, which means white, or from Shesh, which is the Hebrew number for six. Now if you put the two together, we've got a white flower with six petals. And what they suggest it is, uh, in fact, is the uh, uh, Lilium Candida, I like to use that phrase rather than the common name, which is the Madonna Lily. Right? The Madonna Lily, the white, beautiful six, uh, six petals, and the very long stamen in the centre, um, the Madonna lily or the, um, the Lilium candida is what is um, uh, is is uh, thought that that lily of the valley is again a very common flower and of course was the one that was used on Solomon's temple if you remember around uh, Boaz and and um, Jacob. 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 Jacob and, and Boaz was around the top of the pillar was the lilies were represented um, same word and of course the principle here that we should pick up is that it's, it always grows taller than those plants around generally grows taller than the plants around it it stands up above them and is quite visible and of course is a wonderful lesson for ourselves now we're going to leave, the, leave it there um, we can cover the next few verses fairly quickly and probably cover the whole of the next song next time because uh, we won't have any of this other additional stuff we had like tonight and the next song is quite an easy one to get through um, but just in conclusion this is the picture this is a beautiful book by the way if anyone's doing a study of this one on Bible plants um, and there's a lot of footnotes by a, a, a um, um, botanist a Jewish botanist who uh, has done a lot of study into the plants in the Bible and uh, the two flowers and I don't know whether you can perhaps I'll hold it that way first um, here's your um, rose of Sharon up here the Narcissus and there's your uh, lily of the valley 
I reckon that'd be lovely if we could get. I, I'm going to go down and see what it uh, what it would be worth to get that done off in colour, and perhaps put that one underneath that one with the explanation and make up a bookmark. We could actually put in our Song of Solomon. It'd be quite nice if we just got it done off on laser print. But that's the two, the two each, the two extremities. The one in the middle they suggest is the Lily of the Valley in the New Testament when Christ quotes Solomon and says the Lily of the Valley. They suggest it's this one here in the centre. But the two extremity ones are the two flowers, the, the rose of Sharon, the lily of the valley. Yes, Pete? Would there be any translations which would reflect the meaning of those words? Or would they all stick pretty well to the, to the bottom of the well, uh, In what sense do you mean? Like, would actually translate Sharon as Right, I don't know. I think they all stick with the phrase Rose of Sharon and Lily of the Valley. Uh, what's yours got there in uh, the Hebrew? Um, well, it would, it would anyway, it would just be, um, it would be different because uh, because you've got your Hebrew words. Yeah, well, Sharon on whatever the word rose is, Hebrew word. But when we actually went to to, uh, outside commentaries as much as other commentaries, and I've got quite a a few Jewish books at home, they always make those two plants fit these two here. There doesn't seem to be any difference, any variation. There's none that say we think it might be a different flower. They seem to all agree that those are the two plants that are actually referred to here. Um, so um, I think we can stick with what they uh, what they suggest there. It doesn't seem to be any difference. Okay, so we'll leave it at, at that point and uh, we'll pick up then the the uh, a beautiful answer of the groom to that when she says, I'm just like a plain lily. And he goes on and says, no, you're a special lily. Like she was a special horse, she's a special lily.